millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Before I start this week, I'd like to thank my new patrons, Claire, Andrea, and Brenda. Thanks, you guys. Your generosity is so, so appreciated. Remember, if you'd like to keep in touch for the show, please find me on Facebook, Twitter, and, of course, on Patreon.com. All the links are in the show notes. To all my new listeners, welcome. To my old ones, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 38, Catherine of Aragon, Henry's Spanish Queen. Catherine of Aragon is probably best known for three things. Being Henry's brother's widow, only giving birth to a daughter, and being divorced. While all this was, of course, true, there is so much more to Catherine than that. There is, for me, a myth of exceptionalism when it comes to the Tudors, and Henry VIII in particular. He is responsible for a great many firsts, mostly to do with his family and the church, but in many ways he really was not all that much different from what had come before. Historians love to draw lines and say X era starts on this date and ends on this. Therefore, we see Henry portrayed as England's first early modern king, a break from the medieval past. But really, was he all that different? How did he, in terms of domestic and foreign policy, really differ from the policies of his father and of Edward IV? I would argue not all that much. He wants to be king of France and fought for it. No change there. He struggled against a political system where he could never get enough money to fight foreign wars. Tell me something medieval kings did not know. The same thing is true of his first marriage. Because of the sheer number of marriages that Henry had, more than three times more than any other English king since the conquest, it is assumed that something must have fundamentally changed. But one could argue that the task and position of the queen in the royal court was not tremendously different from any period in the Middle Ages, and certainly not substantively different from their immediate predecessors. And yet, we often think of these women, and Catherine in particular, as being actresses and victims in a drama, not the inheritors and formers of a historical legacy. And that does them a disservice. Seems rather patronising to me. Catherine of Aragon reigned as the Queen of England for 24 years, well over half of Henry's reign, and is what she did on the throne that we will be concerned with today. Before we dive into the maelstrom of the great matter, Henry's attempt to annul their marriage and get with Anne Boleyn. We left off last time with her coronation as queen at Westminster Abbey in 1509. At the time, she was six years older than her husband, 23 to his 18. England had, for a while, been governed by dull bureaucrats, and a king in Henry who was so paranoid about noble power that he ruled England in a state of terror. 
Now, England had two active cosmopolitan people on the throne, and so everyone was keen to throw off the shackles. Henry was a man who hankered after the lifestyle of his chivalric heroes of the past. He saw himself in the mould of Lancelot, saving damsels in distress and winning glory on the battlefield. He loved tournaments, feasts, music and a good party, and his nobles loved him for it. The delightfully named Lord Mountjoy wrote the following to the famed Dutch humanist Erasmus, quote, If you could only see how the world here is rejoicing in the possession of so great a prince. Avarice is expelled from the land. Liberality scatters riches with a bounteous hand. Our king does not desire gold or silver, but virtue, glory, immortality. Doesn't that sound like a fun place to be? And right by his side through all of this was his beautiful queen. Now, something I didn't do in the last episode is talk much about Catherine's appearance, and frankly, that's because nothing was less consequential to all the tortured marriage negotiations. Looks and love were immaterial. It was, in fact, the material, the alliances, the land and the cash that mattered. Now, I imagine that you have an image in your head of what Catherine looked like, probably formed by the actress in your favourite Tudor drama. Well, here are the facts, and it's interesting to see how they mesh with the fiction. The first thing to say is something that I mentioned earlier, which is that she was a little older than Henry. Not a whole lot more, though, only six years, so hardly a huge gap. Yet in the TV and film adaptations, she's often portrayed as being much, much older. Simply wasn't true. Next, she was a ginger. Again, this may surprise you, given that she is almost never portrayed as having red hair, but there we go. It was long when hung loose, going to her waist. She was a little plump, by all accounts, and was a beauty. So if we get the image of a stereotypically dark Latin princess, she owed a great deal of her looks to her English ancestors. In the first months as king and queen, both Henry and Catherine took some time away from all the partying and culture vulturing to engage in a spot of revenge. While Henry was arranging the execution of some of his father's most unpopular advisers, Catherine was taking advantage of her new influence to create a household and diplomatic staff more to her liking. One of the first people to go was our friend de Fuensalida. Catherine had not been a fan of the ambassadors that her father had sent over to negotiate her marriage to Henry. She had been fond of Ayala, but she loathed first de Puebla and worked hard to get him recalled. And then, when de Fuensalida came along, she discovered that the grass was far less green on this side. With him went a number of servants whom she felt were insufficiently loyal, and she instructed her father to, quote, chastise him and them, but afterwards pardon them. So, who were Catherine's main companions and advisers now? Well, chief among them all is a man named Friar, or Frey, Diego Fernandez. He had been Catherine's confessor since around 1507, and they shared an intense bond. He was a young man, and indulged her in a number of her conspiracy theories, making her distrust all those around her. She doted on him, treating him like Tom Riddle's diary, pouring all her emotion into him and he took advantage of her. Something that I did not mention last time is that he tried to prevent the marriage of Catherine to Henry and spread scurrilous gossip about his relationship with her. Indeed, it was widely believed at the time, and we can't count this out, that the two had an affair. Now, this does seem quite unlikely to me, as Catherine was nothing if not a dutiful daughter and wife, as well as a woman of at least conventional faith, and so it seems unlikely that she would endanger her position by sleeping with a man of the cloth, but like I said, it can't be ruled out. Catherine defended Fernandez, even when Henry told her that he was no good, and here she got her own way. 
The choice of a confessor was a deeply personal one, and no one was able to convince Catherine that Diego Fernandez was not, quote, the best confessor a woman could want. He remained in her service until 1514, when finally all the stirring and trolling caught up with him. He was accused of fornicating with the women of the court by the king, to which Diego reacted furiously, saying, with some justification, that it was rather rich getting yelled at for sleeping around the court by one of history's great lover of mistresses. Her chamberlain was the Lord Mountjoy that I quoted earlier, whom some of you may remember from my guest episode on Bessie Blount for the Renaissance English History Podcast, who organised her household, which numbered some 200 people, including her various ladies-in-waiting. Her chief friend and confidant, other than Diego Fernandez, of course, in these early years, was Maria de Salinas, a Spanish lady who had been by her side ever since she had arrived in England. It was said that she loved Maria, quote, more than any other mortal. When Maria got married in 1516, she was replaced as Catherine's best friend at court by Margaret Pohl, another old friend whom she had met at Ludlow while she had been married to Arthur. Margaret was a rather curious choice for a Bessie mate, because she was from arch-Yorkist stock. Her blood could not have bled more white. Her father had been Edward IV and Richard III's brother, George Duke of Clarence, and her mother was Anne Neville's sister. On the death of her brother, the Earl of Warwick in the Tower, Margaret became Countess of Salisbury and was loyal to Catherine until the bitter end. Now, one of the main reasons why Catherine had been chosen as Queen was because of her family. She was the daughter of the King of Aragon, who at the time also ruled Castile as regent for her mentally ill sister, Joanna. She was also the aunt of the Duke of Burgundy, the soon-to-be-very-important Charles. In the last episode, I talked a lot about the rivalry between France and Spain in this period. Well, in the early years of Henry's reign, they were involved in an immensely complicated conflict called the War of the League of Cambrai in Italy. In this war, pretty much everyone in Europe was involved, some on both sides at different times, but by 1511, it pitted France and Venice against the Pope, Spain, and the Holy Roman Empire. Henry at this time had actually signed peace treaties with both France and Spain on the urging of his advisers, but he was itching to join what would become known as the Holy League, formed after Pope Julius excommunicated the French king, Louis XII. This provided a great opportunity for Henry to flex his martial muscles. His great aim in his reign was to emulate his hero ancestor, Henry V, and win the French crown that he claimed was his by right. There were those who argued against English involvement, councillors who reminded Henry that war in northern Italy offered England very little in return for the vast expense the continental war always incurred. But the war's head cheerleader in England was Catherine. While he had been a fairly crappy father throughout Catherine's years of limbo between her marriages to Arthur and Henry, he now spent great attention to his youngest daughter as he recognised that she was the mole in the king's inner circle. Henry listened to Catherine. He loved her. Indeed, she served as Spain's ambassador for the first year of her reign, and Ferdinand tended to use her as such, even when a replacement for Dijuan Salida was sent. Perhaps more than any English queen we've studied so far, she was the representative of her homeland in this case. She represented her father's aims and ambitions, and they wrote to each other constantly. More than anyone else, she was responsible for persuading Henry, not that he needed much persuading, to pick up his sword and join the fight. One Venetian observed, quote, The king wants war. The council does not. The queen does. Another remarks, quote, The king says that in the spring he will attack the French. The queen is very warm for this undertaking. Indeed, she took an active role in the preparations, becoming particularly excited about the preparations of the fleet. 
The Venetian ambassador reported, quote, She wants four large galleasses and two wide, round-sterned bastard galleys from the Signori of Venice. She wants the Signori to send one, having heard that France is building bastard galleys. England's involvement in the war began with a series of naval raids that, frankly, did not go well. In 1512, Henry did not formally open hostilities until 1513. At this point, France was assailed from multiple fronts both in Italy and in the kingdom proper, and so Henry decided to add to their list of problems by launching an invasion into Normandy. He prepared a large army, possibly as large as 40,000 strong, and they attacked France from Calais. But of course, he would need someone to keep an eye on things in England, make sure the wheels of government didn't ground to a halt while he was away. For Henry, there was one obvious choice, his wife Catherine. English king fighting in France leaves his wife in charge of England? Remind you of anyone else? This was no figurehead position either. The job of keeping the army supplied in France and the handling of the international diplomacy was handled by a rising star of Henry's administration, Thomas Wolsey, who we'll talk about a lot more in just a sec, but Catherine was the true king's representative in England at this time. So what was she doing while Henry was away? Giles Tremlett, in his biography of Catherine, neatly summarises her responsibilities thusly. Quote, Governing England in Henry's absence now occupied her days. There were felons to be pardoned, prebends, canons, and bailiffs to be appointed, lands and annuities to be handed out, the estates of the recently deceased Countess of Somerset to be dealt with, and a long-running administrative spat between the Archbishopric of Canterbury and the Bishop of Winchester to be resolved. She also, from a distance, dealt with the affairs of Calais in Henry's rearguard. Letters, patents, grants and writs, now carried Teste Caterina Alie Regina, witnessed by Catherine the Queen. Even though this pretty hefty workload kept her busy, she still found time to spend worrying about Henry. In a letter to Thomas Wolsey, she wrote, quote, Thinking that the king's departure from Calais shall cause that I shall not so often hear from his grace for the great business in his journey that every day he shall have, I send now my servant to bring me word of the king, and he shall tarry there until another cometh, and this way I shall hear every week. Write to me of the king's health and what he intendeth to do, for when ye be so near our enemies, I shall never be in rest. The campaign got off to a tricky start when Henry's German allies failed to turn up with the great army he was expecting, but he did win a decent-sized victory at the Battle of the Spurs and captured two cities in northern France. Catherine was delighted, writing that, quote, the victory hath been so great that I think none hath been seen before. Clearly, she had not read much about Cressy and Agincourt. She goes on, quote, All England hath cause to thank God for it, and I especially, seeing that the king beginneth so well. However, two things went badly wrong at this time. First is that Catherine's father, in a move that really everyone should have seen coming, double-crossed Henry and Catherine by making a peace with France. The second, and far more serious one, was that James IV of Scotland, the brother-in-law of Henry VIII, declared his intention to invade in support of his French allies. Henry had left very clear instruction about what should happen should England be attacked in his absence. He empowered his wife to, quote, "...convoke and bring together, when it seems necessary and opportune to the Queen, each and every one of our subjects who are most suitable and capable of defending and protecting our Kingdom of England." to arm and equip them for war, and to station, prepare, and lead them. Of course, Catherine would not be leading her troops into battle. For that, Henry had appointed the Earl of Surrey, but she did everything else to counter the Scottish threat. She ensured that her soldiers marched underneath banners representing both England and Spain, and she herself marched north at the head of a body of troops designed to protect the south of England should the armour un- 
should the army under Surrey fail. This heavy involvement in matters of war was unusual in English history, but it was not unusual for women in Catherine's family. Her own mother, Isabella, was a queen famed for donning armour and inspecting her troops in their barracks. She was taught that the military sphere was not completely closed to women if they were queens. However, you may have heard stories of Catherine donning armour herself and leading her armies into battle, or maybe of her giving her troops an inspiring speech just before it, but alas, no, this is not true. Think about it. Would Henry and his nobility really risk the safety of the Queen of England, a woman who had not yet produced an heir, in an environment that, unlike the men of the court, she had not been trained for her entire life? Of course not. The English army under the Earl of Surrey met the Scots at Flodden in Northumberland and crushed them completely. I wish I had more time to talk about it because it is both a tragic and hilarious story in equal regard, but the upshot was that 10,000 Scots laid in on the field, including the king and most of his senior nobility, and indeed the not-so-senior members as well. The crown passed to a minor, and Scotland would not seriously threaten England again for decades to come. It was a stunning victory. Catherine, in the wake of this victory, wrote to Henry, saying, quote, Your grace shall see how I can keep my promise to protect England, sending you for your banners a king's coat. I thought to send himself to you, but our Englishman's heart would not suffer it. In other words, she wanted to send the bloody, dead body of the King of Scots to her husband, but the English were too squeamish, so instead she mailed him James's still bloodied armour. Stories were told around Europe of how Catherine had personally led troops into battle, how she had inspired them with a valiant and brilliant speech before the fight, and all sorts of tall tales. But of course, these were false or greatly exaggerated. Understandably, after this catastrophic defeat, the new Scottish regime sued for peace. While others supervised the terms, she did the boring but vital admin, making sure that the soldiers and sailors were paid on time and in full, making sure that supplies got sent off on time and to the right places, etc. Her husband was not one for domestic policy, even when he was at home. He was more concerned with foreign glory. What England found out in the year that Catherine ruled England was that she could do it all. However, Catherine was never destined to be Henry's permanent number two, for the great star of the expedition to France of 1514 was Thomas Wolsey, the son of a butcher who became possibly the most powerful courtier in English history up to this point. Wolsey essentially ran all domestic policy in England from around 1515 up to 1529. Henry VIII, as I've already said, was mainly concerned with foreign affairs, sport and partying. He was no micromanager. Wolsey took upon his shoulders the burden of government. Some have called Wolsey a precursor to the future office of Prime Minister, and while this is slightly problematic, it is a useful way to think about him. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about this fascinating man, but just think of him as the Hal guy in England, the man who carried out Henry's orders and who kept everything ticking along. Along the way, he accumulated a great number of titles, including Lord Chancellor, the office by which he ran the government, Archbishop of York, and Cardinal. Wolsey's capability and jealous guarding of authority meant that Catherine, other than her period of regency when Henry was in France, never had a hugely significant political role at home. Catherine did not like Wolsey, though I think it perhaps a little simplistic to say it was because of this. Although she was the daughter of Isabella, great Queen Regnant Castile, she was not the kind of queen who demanded formal political power. She was quite happy to play the traditional queenly role. Her dislike of Wolsey and willingness to blame him when things went wrong probably had a little more to do with her faith. Catherine was not quite the religious zealot that some have portrayed her as, especially in the early years of her reign. 
She, like everyone else in the England up to this point, was a believer and was conventionally pious, but certainly was not the semi-nun-like figure that she tends to be thought of as, though her religious fervour would increase as her life began to fall apart in the late 1520s and 30s. That said, this did not mean that she approved of Wolsey, who only really paid lip service to the lords of the church that he represented. He lived with a woman in a non-canonical marriage. He was a lavish spender and acquirer of wealth, and generally did not act in a particularly pious manner. He was really just like all other noblemen, just in a cardinal's frock. Like most queens, Catherine's domestic role had a lot to do with imagery. Henry held tournaments on a very regular basis, and competed in them as well. This meant that Catherine was there too, all dressed up in her finery, playing the part of the damsel in this chivalric ritual. No time was this more apparent than at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, a diplomatic summit of sorts between Henry and the French king of the time. Giles Tremlett, in his biography of Catherine, described this as, quote, an elaborate display of national peacockery, a battle of ostentation and chivalry that both sides were determined to win. And one of these contests took place between the two queens. Both reportedly scoured their kingdoms, looking for the prettiest ladies to surround themselves with, and dressed them all in their finest clothes. It was estimated that her retinue at the field numbered over 1,000 people, just for her. And this does not include all the extras, including 800 horses and all the pavilions. It was quite a show, and she was one of its centres. She also took an interest in royal marriages, something too that a queen might be expected to do. One such wedding was that of her sister-in-law Mary Tudor to her nephew, the future Charles V. She did essentially all of the things that a mother of the bride or maid of honour might be expected to do. Help pick up the dress, pick out the best linens for the venue, sigh over how perfect the betrothed were for each other, that sort of thing. Another role she played was as the peacemaker and the merciful voice. We've talked a lot about how queens could act as intercessors to throw themselves down at the feet of their lord husband and beg for mercy to be shown to a person, persons, or even a city that was under threat. Catherine was no exception to this, and nor was it better exhibited than on Evil May Day in 1517. This event has become a little better known in the last year or so, and I'm sure you'll work out why in a sec. Basically, to cut a long story short, the kingdom was in a bit of financial difficulty, and this was cut. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. With an increase in the number of migrants coming to London from the continent, mainly Flemings who are highly skilled workers. This did not impress the locals, especially the city's apprentices, who found themselves struggling for work. Tensions were then whipped up by a preacher named John Bell, who incited a riot on May Day. Migrants found their stalls looted at best, or hacked to pieces in the streets at worst, by a mob numbering over 2,000. This was a big deal. After an impassioned speech by Sir Thomas More failed to quell the riot, things got even more out of hand, and it eventually took 5,000 troops to subdue the riot and catch the ringleaders. As a side note, because I can't stop mentioning Shakespeare on this podcast, More's speech features in a play written by a number of people, including the immortal bard, called, surprisingly enough, Sir Thomas More. Ian McKellen has done a number of moving renditions of this monologue, one of which I've put in the show notes. It's definitely worth a listen. In total, around 80 people, some of them teenagers, were rounded up initially and were paraded through the streets before suffering a number of gruesome executions, including being hung, drawn and quartered. Hundreds more were thrown in jail and were brought before Henry and the rest of the court. What happened next is related by an eyewitness. Quote, There remained some 400 prisoners whom the king had destined in like manner for the gallows, but our most serene and most compassionate queen, with tears in her eyes, and on her bended knees obtained their pardon from his majesty, the act of grace being performed with great ceremony. Now, as usual, I have the disclaimer that this was a highly choreographed ceremony. The tearful queen begging for mercy was a very commonly used trope throughout English history so far, and there is considerable evidence to suggest that this was all organised by Wolsey so Henry could come down both hard on the rebels but also appear merciful. That said, the fact that Catherine had the stature, public profile, and popularity to do this, both within the king's inner circle, but also the public at large, is significant. And it is definitely true that Catherine was an immensely popular queen. Often this is portrayed as being as sympathy for her treatment during the divorce, but Catherine had been popular all through her time in England. She had been cheered without need for encouragement at her coronation, and the kudos she gained from the victory at Flodden only served to increase this. If you remember back to episode 35, her mother-in-law Elizabeth of York had been very keen to make sure that she learned as quickly as possible how to speak English. She continued to work on that throughout her young life, so that when she became queen, she was fluent in the language. This was no small thing, and although her accent would always remain, she was an excellent speaker. She observed the traditional queenly pious duties of giving liberal alms to the poor and washing the feet of the sick on Monday Thursday during Lent. She gave away around £200 a year, about 5% of all her spending, on alms. In addition, around £1,000, or a quarter of her expenditure, went on presents or rewards to various people, and about 100 quid went on thanking people who gave her gifts. These gifts could be as expensive as lands or gold, to something as small and relatively inconsequential as some roses from a commoner, but Catherine knew the benefits of accepting even the smallest gifts with grace, treating it the same as if it were a fortune, and the people loved her for it. In terms of culture, while not the most intellectual queen that England had ever had, she was well-educated enough to keep up with the various humanist scholars that would come to court, such as Erasmus, who called her generously, quote, a miracle of learning. She was also interested in the universities, and lent her support to Wolsey's foundation of Cardinals College, now Christchurch College, in Oxford. 
She also went on a visit to Merton College in 1518, and it's reported that the students greeted her with, quote, as many demonstrations of joy and love as if she had been Juno or Minerva. She wasn't just popular with the people, though. She was also loved by the king. The young King Henry was a randy, bawdy, and boisterous man, shown by his numerous affairs pretty much from the get-go, but also the numerous pregnancies that Catherine had during their marriage, which I will get to soon. We also have some rather exciting descriptions of his desire for his wife. The Spanish ambassador in 1512 remarked with surprise that he, quote, "...embraced her and kissed her in public, treating her with care and affection. All the nobles who were present, both bishops and knights, were amazed at the great love that the king professed towards the queen." This is rather cute, but another Spaniard describes something altogether less PG-13. This man had just delivered a letter from Catherine's father, Ferdinand, to the queen. Quote, when she learned that the letter came from her father, she placed it between her dress and her breast. When the King of England saw that the letter was hidden by her breast, strap yourself in, guys, quote, he said that he felt jealous of the letter because it was in her breast. Henry then invited the man to get a really good look at the Queen, presumably he means her breasts, and, quote, see how bella and beautiful she was. If that is all a little bit too bawdy for you, then how about this from the same Spaniard a little later? Quote, King Henry loved his wife greatly, stating publicly in French that his highness was happy because he was the owner of such a beautiful angel and that he had found himself a flower. If you can get away from the bit about her being owned by him, then that is rather cute. This love is also shown in some of the parties that Henry threw for her. He was a bit of a man-child and loved to surprise her by dressing up as a stranger, propositioning her and then revealing himself to her shock and surprise. This happened at least once a year, that Catherine always played along and acted surprised when he quote-unquote revealed his identity to her. The best example, though, of these surprise parties was on Christmas Day 1514. Henry and a group of musicians and four lords and four ladies entered her chambers. The men were dressed in blue velvet gowns and silver cloaks, and the ladies matched these colours, but also with gold bonnets. Of course, they were also all masked. According to the chronicler Edward Hall, quote, This strange apparel pleased much every person, and in especial the Queen. These four lords and four ladies came into the Queen's chamber with great light of torches, and danced a great session, and then pulled off their visors, and then they were well known, and the Queen heartily thanked the King's grace for her goodly pastime, and kissed him. Henry is often portrayed, not all that unrealistically, as a frequent frequenter of other ladies' bedchambers. He slept with many women, Sometimes it was short-term, other times, such as Mary Boleyn and Catherine's lady-in-waiting, Bessie Blount, it could last for years, but for most of the first two decades of his marriage, he was devoted to his wife. Let's not forget that this time, that this sort of thing was expected. In theory, kings should stay faithful, but no one expected them to. Indeed, most of Henry's affairs were conducted when Catherine was in confinement, and out of respect for his wife, he was fairly discreet, at least at first. So... Up to this point in time, we can see that Catherine was a pretty successful queen, right? Popular, pious, a great aid in times of crisis, bringer of a decent dowry and foreign alliance. If Catherine or Henry were to die right now, she would probably go down as one of England's most successful queens. She had almost everything. Well, there is that word. Almost. Because there were a few things that went spectacularly badly wrong for Catherine, and they all became apparent at around the same time in the mid-1520s, and none of them were her fault. The first thing was a diplomatic realignment in Europe. Earlier in the show, I talked about England's involvement in the War of the Holy League, also known as the War of the League of Cambrai. 
Well, the English and Scottish involvement in this was fairly peripheral. The main fighting was taking place in Italy, with a Spanish and Imperial-led coalition fighting a Franco-Venetian force. The English experience in this conflict was not good, as once more Ferdinand double-crossed his son-in-law by signing a truce with France in 1514, ruining Henry's vision of a glorious conquest. He then got his revenge by not marrying his sister Mary to Ferdinand's nephew Charles, future Charles V, and instead marrying her to the King of France in order to secure the peace. In this period, England was finding out that she was very much a second-rate power in Europe, and we can see Henry's foreign policy taking a rather tetchy tone. He even tried to use Catherine's name to provoke France into war with Ferdinand Spain, saying that Castile was Catherine's by right, a weird claim to make given his own views about the worthiness of female succession when a man was available. Well, what happened next was that there were two new leaders of the two emerging superpowers of Europe. In France, a new young king emerged in Francis I, he of the feel of cloth of gold fame, and in the Holy Roman Empire, Catherine's nephew Charles, who had become king of Spain in 1516, bought himself the imperial throne in 1520. This united a huge territory under one ruler, sandwiching the French. It wasn't just Charles's massive bribes that made an emperor, it was also diplomatic lobbying from a number of powers, none more so than England. Francis himself was competing to be Holy Roman Emperor, but England saw the benefits of being related to the Habsburg Charles through Catherine and lobbied hard. Catherine in particular did a lot to secure this, something that did not escape the notice of Francis's mother, who remarked to the English ambassador Thomas Boleyn that Henry's foreign policy in this regard was really being driven by Catherine and not the king. Catherine did not hide the fact that she hated the French, yet another thing that ingratiated her with the English public, who saw France as their natural enemy. She constantly lobbied the English council to favour her nephew over Francis. It may well have been her doing that Henry arranged for Charles to visit the English court in May 1520, a few weeks before the meeting with Francis on the field of the Cloth of Gold. According to the chronicler John Hall, quote, To see the Queen of England was the intent of the Emperor, and indeed, they spent a lot of time with each other during this visit. She had not seen any of her family since the visit of her sister Joanna over a decade earlier, and so this must have been a wonderful time for her. Relations between England and the Emperor Charles remained good for the next few years, and so it was proposed that he should marry Henry and Catherine's daughter, and yes, I promise we'll get to the kids soon. Mary was just six or seven years old when this was first mooted, far younger than her proposed husband, but no one much cared about that. Charles was offering Henry the moon, the return of England's lost French lands, a grand alliance, etc., etc., but Catherine and many others were not drinking the Kool-Aid. They knew that Henry was being played once again, just like Ferdinand had done so on so many occasions. Catherine said as much to the imperial ambassador who wrote to Charles, quote, She told us vehemently that the only way for you to retain the friendship of the king and of the English was to fulfil everything that you have promised. It was much better to promise little and perform faithfully everything than to promise much and fail in part. Catherine knew that Henry's wrath once provoked was not easily assuaged. The following year, in 1524, she spoke to the ambassador again. Quote, the Queen sent her confessor to me in secret to warn me of Henry's discontent and asked me to write to you and advise you to remedy matters. She is very sorry that your majesty ever promised so much in this treaty and fears that it may one day be the cause of a weakening of the friendship between you two. I beg your majesty to keep this communication of the Queen's secret. It would be regrettable if it came to the ears of certain English. Making a mistake, this is Catherine using her position and family connections to try to have an effect on English foreign policy. 
She did her best to make these two massive egos will be able to work together in partnership, but to no avail. The end of this partnership came on the battlefield at Pavia, where Charles won a crushing victory over Francis, capturing the French king and destroying his army. This meant that Charles had no need of whiny Henry anymore. He was the master of Europe. All bowed down before him and despair. He broke off the engagement with Mary, marrying instead a Portuguese princess, and did not involve England at all in any of the peace negotiations or share in the spoils of war. Henry was pissed. Suddenly, Catherine's Spanishness, one of the chief things that recommended her as a queen, became poison, a symbol of an alliance that continually promised everything and delivered nothing. Catherine was just the embodiment of disappointment and broken promises. Henry fell ever more strongly into Wolsey's hands in terms of foreign policy, as he had always been more in favour of a French alliance, yet another area where he and Catherine clashed. But even then, things could have been okay for Catherine. She would have lost almost all influence politically, but she could have kept her crown. However, there was another problem. Probably the greatest problem of them all. Children. Between 1509 and 1518, Catherine was pregnant six times. Now, I have seen throughout this podcast that infant mortality in this period was incredibly high, and that if half your children made it into adulthood, then you'd consider yourself about average. So, Catherine would expect about three surviving adult kids from those six, but alas, no. So, steal yourselves, because things were about to get sad. Her first pregnancy resulted in a stillborn daughter in 1510, but the following year, Catherine did give birth to a son on the 1st of January 1511. There were triumphant celebrations at court and around the country. He was named Henry, naturally, and his father gave thanks at Walsingham, and Catherine was formally churched, but only a few weeks after being born, the young princeling died. This was a tragic double whammy for both parents, and reports suggest that they were devastated, but united in their grief. It would be another two years before the next pregnancy, again to a son, but again this one was only alive for a few hours at most. This happened again in 1514, with yet another son only staying alive for a few hours. Finally, in 1516, Catherine delivered a healthy baby, a girl, who they named Mary. Henry was disappointed, but still supportive, semi-echoing the words that his father used to console his mother after Prince Arthur died. Quote, We are both young. If it was a daughter this time, by the grace of God, the sons will follow. But it wasn't to be. 1518, Catherine gave birth for the final time, prematurely to a stillborn daughter. By then, she was too old to give birth again. In the eyes of contemporaries, and indeed herself, she had failed. So, why all this panic over the lack of sons? Well, there are a few reasons. The first was that Henry was the only male heir of his father, so there were no brothers or nephews who could securely take the throne after he died. He did have a daughter... But in his mind, and that of the English in general, it seems at this point, that didn't count. It's shown clearly in a report given by the Venetian ambassador about the birth of Mary. He wrote that if it had been a boy, then he would have rushed to congratulate Henry that very day, but since it was a girl, well, he'll just wait until the christening. He reported that the birth, quote, has proved vexatious, for never has this entire kingdom ever so anxiously desired anything as it did a prince it appearing to everyone that the state would be safe should his majesty leave an heir male, whereas without a prince, they are of a contrary opinion. Now, when he says the entire kingdom, he really means the important people, but it does show the strength of feeling on the female succession. 
England really had been extraordinarily lucky that this problem had not confronted it since 1135 with the Empress Matilda, and that had led to a destructive civil war. And, of course, the Wars of the Roses were still in living memory. No one, least of all the king, wanted a succession that was anything other than rock solid. Of course, it is with the great irony of this whole thing that the Tudor dynasty would not just survive with female succession, but thrive, but this was not at all clear at the time. Henry's view was that it was vital that he have a male heir, was not some weird personal obsession, it was the prevailing view of the majority of his nobles and courtiers. As we've spoken about before, a failure to produce sons was not considered at the time as being something of a misfortune, it was viewed with suspicion. Fertility was a blessing conferred upon you by divine favour. If you failed to produce healthy children, well, then maybe you weren't God's favourite person. It also did not help that all this pregnancy had a terrible effect on Catherine's health and appearance. Henry's rival, Francis I of France, cruelly jibed, quote, My good brother of England has no son, because, although young and handsome, he keeps an old and deformed wife. A visiting Venetian remarked that, quote, She's rather ugly. Jerks. But there is no doubt that the years had not been kind to her. She had put on weight and lost her youthful good looks, while Henry, at the age of 27, at Catherine's last pregnancy, was in his prime, and if you'll forgive the vulgarity, spreading it all around the court. In another piece of terrible timing, it was about the same time that Catherine was delivering her final stillbirth that Henry's mistress, Bessie Blount, became pregnant. The following year, she gave birth to a child, and to really stick the knife into Catherine, it was a healthy boy. Henry was delighted, and revelled in the supposed fact that it wasn't his fault that Catherine could not deliver a boy. He formally acknowledged him as a son at a party thrown by, you guessed it, Catherine herself. I bet she was thrilled. In 1524, he further made his son a knight of the garter, and granted him the great title of Duke of Richmond, amongst other things. Like I said earlier, if you want more on Bessie Blount and Henry Fitzroy, then check out the episode I did on them for the Renaissance English History Podcast. But still, that did not necessarily amount to a rejection of her as queen. Indeed, this happened all in 1519 when the queen was deeply involved in the diplomatic summits with Charles and Francis, and then Charles again. We've had childless queens before, plenty of them indeed, and none of them were divorced by their husbands. So why was Catherine different? To understand, we have to look at the timeline. In 1519 or so, Henry realises that he'll never have a son with the Queen, throwing the succession into doubt at a time when the wounds of civil war over the succession were healing and no other viable candidate was available. That same year, his mistress gives birth to a boy who is healthy and survives, proving that Henry still had it. In the 1520s, Catherine is still at the height of her political powers, working with the imperial ambassador Henry and her nephew Charles V to first arrange the marriage of her only child to Charles and then an alliance between the two. She then worked tirelessly to try to make this relationship work, before, in 1525, it all fell apart, leaving the central reason for their marriage, her entire value as a bride, worthless. She was a mother without an heir, and the aunt of England's new enemy. But even then, all those things stacked up together would not necessarily have added up to divorce proceedings. Nope, this camel's vertebrae needed one more straw before it cracked. And this straw came in the shape of Anne Boleyn. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on Anne Boleyn in this miniseries, as, of course, she's going to get her own one, so I'm going to do my best to focus on Catherine throughout all of this, but it is important to quickly talk about Anne now, because it's her emotional dominance over the king that finally pushed him into ending his marriage with Catherine. 
Anne had arrived in 1521 and was the daughter of the former English ambassador to France, Thomas Boleyn, who I mentioned earlier. She won over the court very quickly with her exotic French manners and dresses, and by the mid-1520s, Henry was besotted. He asked her again and again to become his mistress, but she knew the way that to win power over a king was to use the most powerful word. No. She would not be his mistress, she would only be his wife. And with that, the camel's back was broken and Catherine's fate was sealed. So I'm going to leave the story there for this week on this cliffhanger, or it would be a cliffhanger if most of you didn't already know what was going to happen next. It's going to be a little while though before you get the final instalment in this series on Catherine of Aragon, as in exactly a fortnight it'll be Christmas Day. Not going to lie, I've been wearing my Christmas jumpers for weeks now, and I've been indulging in mince pies, mulled wine, and a mountain of chocolate. I also had my work Christmas party yesterday, and so my voice has been a little bit deeper and huskier, as you may have noticed. It really is the most wonderful time of the year. Anyway, there will be an episode on Christmas Day, but it will be a supplemental episode. I got such great feedback on the Queens of Ice and Fire episode that I thought I'd do another one on Queens from popular fiction, though technically the one I'm covering did not actually ever become a Queen. I'll leave it as a Christmas surprise for you all because I am a fearful tease. If this isn't really your cup of tea, then don't worry, the show will be back in the new year with the drama of Catherine of Aragon's desperate attempt to keep her crown while her horny husband seeks to replace her with a younger, prettier, and potentially more fertile model. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.